you can't always rely on what looks what what the bins are most full of at the fly shop what most flies look like you got to get in the fish's head a little bit and say what is the fish seeing and how can i most accurately imitate that and of course fish see differently than us they see colors different so i think they were a little bit lost when we said okay i've got to perfectly match this olive hue to this blueing olive or else you know it's not going to work and that's probably not the most important thing that was mike mercer telling us how he gets into the fish's head while designing flies we're headed back to Cali today and the Lower Sack. This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show please head over to your podcast app and click subscribe so others can find the show and you don't miss the next episode. And if you can share a link with one other person, that would be super amazing. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash subscribe to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And today I talk with Mike Mercer, one of the main guys behind the Reading Fly Shop, uh, the Lower Sacramento and Northern California Fly Fishing. Mike breaks down a step-by-step plan on how you can catch fish on the lower sack, his amazing strategy to pare down flies while tying them to their essence, and how he makes his indicator rig. We get into uh, talk about a cool perspective from a guy who has been working in the fly shop for over 40 years and has no plans of leaving anytime soon. Don't miss this as Mike shares the exact process that he used to develop the missing link one of the most productive flies on the planet. This episode is sponsored by Delifresh Design, an all-American creator of fine, sustainable fly fishing gear. Stay tuned later in the show to hear how Ross does his part with DLD to reduce waste and impacts as he builds great equipment in a sustainable fashion. You can find fresh equipment designs on Instagram at Delifresh Design, and you can get 20% off your next order using the coupon code WFS20 at delifreshdesign.com. So, without further ado, here's Mike Mercer from theflyshop.com. How's it going, Mike? Going well. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate yeah. you having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We've got uh, a bunch of topics to dig into here. You uh, dig into here. You've been, you know, around uh, around it seems like all over the uh, the country, the world fishing for different species and you're working for what I think is maybe I'm not sure if it's the biggest fly shop in the in the country, but it seems like it, it, it's out there um, a lot. Um, but yeah, I wanted to get into all that. But before we do, maybe we can just talk about how you first got into fly fishing and, and how you got to where you are now. Absolutely, yeah. I, so when, when I was a kid, I was like five years old. Um, my father actually worked in the bee business for a while, and so we grew up in Chico, California, Northern California. And so my mom and my sister and I would actually go up to a hat creek, which is a well-known local stream. And we would camp, tent camp for about two months to three months at a time so that we could meet my father as he drove bees from Nevada back to California and went back and forth. And so we could see him. Otherwise we wouldn't see him for a long period of time. So we just camped. And part of that was, you know, I'm a five-year-old kid. What do I do? I'm fascinated with water. And so I would go down. My mom got me this little Snoopy rod and I'd go down and start fishing. And it was fun because I was just little and 
the guys that stalked the stream, the Hat Creek back there, they get, you know, after weeks they got to know me. They'd see this little kid down there and they say, here, come here, kid, come here. And they'd push all the other people away and they'd stalk the fish in this little hole right in front <laughs> of me and say, okay, cast. And nice. so I'd hook the fish and then I'd just, I didn't know really how to fish. So I just, I'd hook him and then I'd just turn around and run back to the tent site. So dragging this trout for about, 30 yards back to the, <laughs> where my mom would have to take care of him from there. Yeah. So anyway, but it, it instilled um, a, a great wonder of water because I'd catch salamanders and bugs and, you know, I just typical inquisitive kid. Right. So I really, even at that young age developed a, a real love for water and the things that lived inside of it. And so from there, um, moved back to Chico. My dad got into ranching and, and, um, so I would just fish anywhere I could. And usually that was just like irrigation ditches or anything. Some, sometimes they didn't even have fish, but I was just, just, just compelled to fish. And, and as I got a little older then, um, around 12 years old, I took a YMCA class. And uh, a guy who was, was leading it was uh, a guy who's still a very dear friend of mine, John Andrews, lives in Idaho now. And he taught, so he, he loved to fly fish. So he would, um, he took us on camping trips and brought us fly fishing. And, and so I kind of made that jump at about 12 years old from, from spin fishing to, um, fly fishing. And a lot of that was around Chico. So a lot of my early fishing was small stream fishing for trout. And I think that's a great way to learn. You learn a lot about stream craft and, and how to read water, where the trout are, how to not to catch them, how to spook fish, you know, make all the mistakes. And that really surprisingly tends to relate pretty well to the larger rivers too. You just like look for small streams and big streams. And, um, so that's how I grew up. And, um, when I was a teenager, I started a little place called Mike Mercer's rod and fly shop and, and I built rods and tight flies. And, um, just my parents' basement of all things. So guys would, these big businessmen would walk down the stairs in the basement and it's just kid making <laughs> flies and rods and, uh, and buy rods and flies from me. And I had some magazines and, <laughs> and, um, Anyway, eventually there's more of the story, but uh, when I was 18, I was going to junior college and, um, and I came up to fish hat Creek again. And on the way I'd heard that there was a fly shop and this is 1978. No one ever knew what a fly shop was, uh-huh. but I did. And I stopped in, they just opened their doors and started talking to the guys and, um, the two owners at that point and Mike Mitchell and Brad Jackson. And before I left, one of the guys, Mike said, Hey kid, you want a job? And so basically I said, of course. And so I quit college and went to work at the, at the Reading Fly Shop when I was 18. They just opened up 1978. So still here 41 years later. And, um, it's been a great lodge. It is the biggest fly shop in the world. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's been really, really cool to, to, uh, walk through the different generations of the shop and see the different iterations of how we've, um, grown and, and, the, the, the successes we've had, the, the, the failures we've yeah. endured and just the various parts of the business. But yeah, that's, that's probably cool. the shortest version I can give you. That's cool. <laughs> no, that gives us a good summary. What, what did your, um, what did your parents think of you, uh, jumping out of college and going into the, the fly shop? They were actually, that's a great question. They were actually all for it. Um, they knew how much I loved to fish and I was going to school to be a wildlife biologist, figuring I could, get plenty of, you know, stream more time anyway, just working. And that was kind of a time of affirmative action. And I was basically, I was probably the wrong gender. And, the, mm. um, at that time, it just, it probably wasn't, I probably wasn't going to get a job, at least yeah. not what I wanted. And so I think they knew it's like, you know, 
this kid, he just lives to fish. I think this is probably a good thing. So they actually, to their credit, had no problem with That's it. That's cool. And and so this is pretty cool. I love the uh, the, the basement in your in your parents' house too. Could you could you take uh, take me to like you know? So I've I've just pictured this. You're dropping down into the basement, down the stairs, kind of coming. <laughs> are you coming through the house, or are you kind of coming through an outside door? Actually, at that point, it was through an outside door, and oh, so cool. it was my ba- it was my bedroom. So people had to actually come into my bedroom, and in my bedroom, I had it was a two rooms. And one was my bedroom, but I also sold flies and magazines in that room. And then there was a little, little part of my bedroom, which I didn't utilize. And that was my rod making room. That's where oh. I built rods, both fly rods and spinning rods. And so, yeah, these people would come down and <laughs> just come down in the basement. It's, it's my bed, you know. And, yeah. and uh, But they, they seemed to like it. I mean, back then it was different, right? There yeah. wasn't a lot of the same stuff we have now today. It was There wasn't a lot of fly fishing stuff around. It was just piecemeal. And so... Yeah. Even though, like I, I, before I came to work fly shop, I also, when I was a kid, worked for uh, Walton and Erlene Powell for a while, um, not making rods or anything, but just working in their shop a little bit. And, um, and so that was kind of, for me, it was kind of a big deal. But that was the only thing at that point, really, in Chico that there was fly fishing. And so, I, you know, as small niches I had, there wasn't that much market. And so people got to know who I was, and they'd come, and I'd tie special flies for them, and you know, if they wanted, sometimes if you guys wanted a spinning rod to fish for striped bass in the Sacramento, so I could do that, I'd make Fenwicks and stuff like uh-huh. that. And yeah, and so sometimes I'd make guys want fly rods. I'd I'd actually use um, the some of the same blanks that uh, Walton Powell did on his fiberglass rods. I just buy them from him and then make the rod. Oh, wow. And so and this yeah. is the yeah, this yeah, is the Powell. Pretty funny. This is the Powell from the rod manufacturer yeah walton powell exactly yep. walton powell exactly cool. mm-hmm. okay and yeah so back in that time the, the 78 when you know you got into that first fly shop so yeah i guess overall in the country there wasn't a lot of fly shops but what was you know what before that in, in chico or around there what what were the shops was it, it was kind of tackle shop sort of thing yeah there was i mean walton powell shop of course they were rod building but they did a little they sold a little bit of flies and stuff like that uh, walton's wife Erlene actually kind of took me under a wing early on and really kind of dressed up my flight time, got me a lot better than I had been. And so that was a real blessing. And so that was cool. I also worked for a little um, a bait and tackle shop. But I also did fly fishing stuff called Journey's End. And um, to kind of to speak to what you just alluded to is that, yeah, that was that was kind of the style of people wanted to fly fish. They had to kind of just search for it here and there. Um, and so in Chico, there wasn't much else. That, you know, Journey's End tackling guy, the people came there and they'd buy flies and they had fly rods a little bit there as well as bait and tackle and everything else. And, um, and so being just making fly, mostly fly rods and flies, I kind of had a viable little niche at that mm-hmm. point. And, um, so yeah, so, I mean, there was a, when I came to work here, there was a couple other shops in the Bay area. Um, but they were brand new for the most part. And, um, just like we were. And so there, yeah. there really wasn't, it was kind of the beginning of an era. Gotcha. Gotcha. And now, yeah, now the fly shop, um, you know, which you work for, you work for, for a, a number of years is, you know, as you mentioned, it grow, it's grown as to one of the, and what is the largest fly shop? What does that mean? Just, uh, I mean, I guess you guys do a lot of online sales, but you also have a, a, a I'm sure a large shop there. What, what, what does that entail when you say the largest shop? Um, just, just, um, be, because we do a lot of things, for example, you know, just for, from strictly a fly fishing standpoint, just a real fly shop, you know, we sell more flies than anybody. And, oh, and we've got, okay. you know, we've got a ton of tackle. Um, and we've got a crazy amount of flies. If you walk in the shop, it's like, 
oh my gosh. And that's, you'd only see a part of it. We got oh, so really? much backstock and stuff. So just for the name, you know, we sell millions in flies. And so it's, um, just for that stuff, but we also sell a lot of other gear, but a lot of shops sell a lot of gear. Yeah. We're not probably bigger than anybody else in that respect. Gotcha. Um, but we also have, you know, what I, I work in the travel department. And so oh, right. we have a whole department of, you know, seven or eight people that just work sending people to international trips around the world and to fly, fly fishing lodges around the world. We also, because we're a destination here in Reading with tons of great fishing around, we also have a, a large guide service. Um, we might, the last I checked, we did actually have a, the largest guide fly fishing guide service anywhere. And that's due in large part because we have year round fishing, very, really, you know, moderate climate. So we can, we've got rivers like the lower Sacramento in town that fishes well virtually 365 days a year. If you look at some of the guide services in, in the Rocky mountains, they do more in a short amount of time because they have a short season. Right. You know, if they work year round, they'd, they'd have more than we do, but because we have this year round season, it's been really nice. Gotcha. And w- one of the reasons we actually exist here in California was that when one of the original owners, Mike Mitchell, like decided he was going to start a fly shop. Um, he wanted to go someplace where it wouldn't just be selling gear. It would be, uh, mm. you know, uh, have a, a good place to have great guide, fish, good, 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 you know, fishing. And, and, um, so anyway, and, and we also have a private waters program. We have a lot of leased private waters. We lease water around. It's never been public before. It's just, you know, gotcha. always in private. So we, at least so people could go and sure. fish places that, you know, on their own, which that's always a popular thing. Huh. Um, and then of course our, re- our retail shop, which we sell a lot of gear, both online and as walk-in. So. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you guys basically have it all covered and you, and you have the good, uh, the, the website name, the URL, the, the fly shop. That's yep. definitely a good, a good one to have. Yeah. Um, I think, <laughs> yeah. I think that, you know, Mike Mitch, like the owner, he's, he's still the sole owner now, but he, that was a kind of a stroke of genius way back. It was like, Huh, this, you know, nobody took the fly shops. I'm going to take it. So, yeah. um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's been kind of a fun thing. That's cool. So, yeah, I was going to dig into, you know, you've obviously traveled around and fished a lot around the world. I was kind of thinking initially maybe digging into some of the remote, you know, Alaska stuff, but it, it sounds like maybe, you know, talking about Redding and what you guys have down there, that's always kind of a funny thing when you say a destination because, you know, a destination could be in your backyard, right? It, it's all it yeah, depends on who the exactly. person is. But what would you say when you think of, you know, Redding and your area, What what is the biggest destination spot down there where you might take somebody? Um, no question. It's the lower Sacramento, which flows right through the town of Redding and then goes south from here. So, I mean, we've got a lot of tremendous mountain trout streams, and I love them all. But if you look at our guidebooks, you know, where do we get the most guide service work? Eight, probably 80% of it goes to Lower Sac. And okay. the reasons are basically it's a bigger river. It's very drift boat friendly. Um, it, it's full of beautiful big wild rainbows that, you know, mostly are 15 to 23, 24 inches. Um, they're big, heavy-bodied birches, gorgeous rainbows. And the reason that they're here and the reason why this fishery is so good um, is, is more of a more recent kind of a thing. It's back when we first started the shop in the 70s, the, the lower Sacramento was no one fished it. It was a big river and it seemed looked good and everything. We had some pretty big caddis hatches, but there just didn't seem to be a lot of rainbows. The, the fish that were here were nice, but you'd fish for a long time and not catch very many fish. And um, we didn't really know what was going on at that time, but we had so many world-class rivers like Fall River and Hack Creek and McLeod. We just didn't think about it much. It's like, yeah, it's the Sacramento, but it's not very good. And so we just focused on all our other world-class fisheries. 
And then um, things started to happen. We noticed, and one thing that happened was that there was a, uh, a um, pulp mill south of us here, and they were. It turns out they were pumping dioxin in the river, mm-hmm. and somebody, you know, some watchdog group, I think, found out about. It. So they shut that down, and so they no more dioxin in the river. And um, and then up above, more recently, um, all the all of a lot of our really most of our really great trout streams in the mountains flow into Shasta Lake. Okay. And then from Shasta Lake, they, it it kind of coalesces into the lower Sacramento. And so just below Shasta Dam, um, there was a giant influx from a copper, an old copper mine. And so this, it, for a while, it was the number one super fun site in the in the country. Um, just a, it's just this copper, nasty stuff. It, mm. Water comes in orange. Jeez. And um, and so they cleaned that up. And it was a long, ongoing thing, still going. But what we found is that when they started doing all these water improvement qualities, suddenly we didn't just have caddis anymore. Suddenly we started seeing a resurgence of mayflies, uh, PMDs, green drakes, betas, um, a lot of different species that all the mountain streams have, but we never had in lower Sacramento. And then we'd start seeing different caddis species. And finally, the, the, real, the thing that really showed us what was going on was we started to see a resurgence of salmon flies and golden stones little Yellowstone because they're kind of the canary in a coal mine, right? They have to have mm-hmm. very clear water to be able to clean water to survive. So when we started seeing the stoneflies, it's like, okay, mm-hmm. something's really changed. And then at more or less the same time as our salmon runs were depleted terribly here up in the upper part of Sacramento, they put in a cold water device on Shasta Dam. And so they could move this device up and down hundreds of feet again uh, on yep. the dam so they could choose what, you know, what, temperature water they would put into the into the lower sack and so suddenly we've got like 56 degrees year oh. round and um they did that for the salmon and it's and such as it is it did help there's other it's a whole nother you know yeah. can of worms there but <laughs> it did help but but uh but secondarily it made a huge impact on the trout fishing so now we had clean water a bunch of a bunch of insect species which got even better when the cold water became regulated and then we noticed that instead of, uh, you know, a few bigger trout, suddenly we've got tons of big trout. Hmm. And so it's a really success story where, you know, with, we didn't realize how badly it was polluting because you couldn't see it. Um, but when they made all these changes, suddenly we've got a true world-class trout fishery with lots of big fish and lots of insects, lots of hatches hmm. and lots of great nymphing. And um, while it's never been known for as a hatching, you know, a dry fly stream, it's becoming more and more, um, popular just for that. It's still predominantly nymph fishing, but I noticed over the last five years or so, we've had more and more predictable, great dry fly fishing, primarily with mayflies. Gotcha. Um, the caddis with the with the with the improved water quality have actually regressed to more of a normal niche because they dominate before they're the only thing that could survive. And now the mayflies have gotten stronger. There's more stones, um, but it's become equally um, productive as a mayfly stream with all the different species. And so it, 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 it's just really good from a fly fishing standpoint. That's a good thing, right? Yeah. And so it's, it's remarkable. So all that to say that we've got a stream here that from a guide standpoint, we, we, we use 100% guide, you know, um, drift boats to mm-hmm. access and we fish dries and nymphs. What, what it's kind very of, comfortable, easy way. What kind of drift boats do you guys yeah. run down there? 
Oh, all you know, mostly sixteen foot, seventeen foot drift boats. Yeah. All different. But yeah, each guide has his own. Oh, favorite, okay. So, yeah. But yeah, just standard, standard, standard. You know, is there a, double hundred um, drift boats. This is a little bit of a t- side uh, note, but is there mm-hmm. a, a boat? Uh, I'm kind of thinking about getting into a little bit of a drift boat uh, series. But is are there any drift boat manufacturers or companies down there? In, in, in that California, um, there's some about, in yeah. Oregon. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah there's high high drift boats, and there's a couple. It's kind of, I mean, Oregon's kind of a little bit of hotbed, I think, for for yeah. drift boats. Yeah, and that's, there's several manufacturers up there. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I'm, I'm in Oregon, so yeah, we have a bunch of drift boats, and I've got a I've got a good history mm-hmm. on the boats. But cool. Yeah, so you guys run the drift boats, and yeah, um, we do. Although you know, we mentioned briefly before we got on the line here, Dave, about DIY fishing, and the Sacramento it has this reputation as like, well. You know, it's just, it's a big river, so you have to have a drift boat to fish it. But I'm living proof that's not the case. I personally prefer to wait it. Hmm. And so what happens is you just have to know all the access points that are good for waiting. And there's quite a few. You just have to figure them out. But basically between Redding and Anderson, which is about eight miles via the highway, um, a little longer via the water, but um, there's, you know, there's numbers of good walk-in access. Hmm. Now, it's a big river. You're not going to be able to fish it, you know, shore to shore, anything like that at yeah. all. But, you know, there's a lot of great water that can be accessed via wading. So I always tell people, you know, you don't have to have a guide to fish this river. You just have to learn the, the good access. And the flows change during the winter. Generally, the flows are quite low because there's no need for agricultural demands downstream. And so they drop the flows way down and, and fill the lake, get, you know, fill, get ready for the next season. In the spring, they start to raise the flows as agricultural demand comes up. In the summer, it's full on. They're pumping a lot of water down for agriculture. Mm-hmm. And then as it goes in the fall and winter, it drops again. So even in the high flows, though, there's some good weight fishing, although it's probably 20% of what you have in the winter when it's very low. Oh. And, and, of course, it's, it's, you know, it's legal to fish here all year round. So um, it's a great destination in the winter, fall, winter, early spring, um, when maybe other streams aren't open. And again, the quality of fish is remarkable. The rainbows here are just beautiful. So that's great. Yeah, yeah that, that's the story. Yeah, that, I mean, that's definitely a great success story. And and I think, you know, I think the Sacramento. I'm not quite sure, but I think maybe historically it had some of the largest Chinook runs. I'm not even sure. Maybe the largest. Uh, fish just size of chinook right even bigger than the columbia back in the day but that seems to be the case that the salmon maybe will take a little bit longer you know on the recovery where rainbows are hitting their little niches and migrating around within the within the river but did you see this change i mean you've seen it how long have you been working at the um the fly shop uh, 41 years now. Yeah, yeah, 41 years. Wow, that's, that, is, that is amazing. So you've seen it. I mean, you've seen this change over the time. And, and how would you say, you know, in the last five or 10 years, does it just keep getting better and better? Or do you see some leveling off of the rainbow fishing? The rainbow fishing, I've seen both. I think overall, it's by far the healthiest it's ever been. I remember back in the, the, the early 90s, we had a couple of years, we cut a lot of big fish, a lot of 24, 25, 26, 28, you know, even some pushing 38, 30 inch fish. But it was odd. I don't still don't know exactly what it was, something that wasn't obvious. And then it dropped back down to normal where our normal fish here are 15 to 20 inches. That's a normal fish. And, um, and we've never seen that, that, that big of a push of giant fish before hmm. and, or since. Um, so there's weird things like that, but yeah. overall it's plateaued. Um, you know, where we, we, we catch lots of fish year round. They're really big, beautiful fish. Um, we see little oscillations depending on weather and stuff like that. Generally because they control the flows, it's, it's, it's very 
predictable. Um, mm. But I would say that as far as numbers and stuff, one thing that happened or has continued to happen that really worried us, um, and it's kind of a kind of a serendipitous thing how this timing worked out, but we were very concerned because over the last 34 years, we've noticed a precipitous decline in the number of kings returning. Oh, yeah. And more in the more recent years, in the last five or eight years, it's gotten, it's gotten very bad. The point, I mean, when I first started working here, you could go out and just look out at the river and just see hundreds of spawning salmon everywhere. I mean, just everywhere. And now I can go out and I can go for weeks on end without seeing a salmon. Right. Um, so it's been very dramatic. And we were concerned. It's like we knew the fish ate tons and tons of eggs. The trout ate tons and tons of eggs right. in September, October, November. And we're thinking, man, the salmon are there. You know, we're, number one, concerned for the salmon. And secondarily concerned, what's that going to do to our trout fishery? Right. Well, as I said, serendipitously, we had these improved water conditions and thus you know, improved insect biomass that happened at the same time. And our, our fish are probably, well, not probably, they are healthier than they were back when they had the salmon runs. Oh, yeah. Because huh. filling in for the eggs has been all this That's massive nice. amount of, of new insects. And so they're fatter and bigger and healthier than we've That's ever cool. seen them. But that, that is cool. It's, it's not good news for the salmon. No. I mean, it has nothing to do with that. But no. from a trout fishery, we breathe a huge sigh of relief. It's like, oh, thank goodness, because we were really concerned. I mean, because we knew that they depended on those eggs, and now they don't have to. They eat them when the salmon are here, but it's just not as big a deal anymore. Gotcha. So. Okay. Yeah, I was hoping we can get into I think this is a pretty cool line to go down as far as the Sacramento and maybe thinking of a DIY sort of deal. I mean, if you had – maybe you can just talk about how you – get into fish, you know, on, on the Sacramento and how you do it. And then maybe we can get into a little t- some tips for maybe somebody who hasn't been there before and how you, how we could help them get into some fish. Could, could you maybe start off just with sure. how, how you typically, the typical way you get into some of those fish there? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, um, and again, you know, um, I fish it, I weight fish it year round, but I do the vast majority of my fishing here in the winter, um, starting in usually around October, November, and then fishing through, March, April, that sort of thing. It's because the water flows are low, and it opens up a tremendous amount of shallow riffles, which you know hold a lot of insects, mm-hmm. holds a lot of trout because of that. And so, you know, if, if a person comes into the shop, we'll give them we have you know maps we can give they're free, and we'll show you access points up here in the Reading area. And the Reading area has the most um, from here down to Anderson. There's miles, and miles of rivers, but um, up in Reading, there's a very concentrated amount of wading water, just because. It's still kind of the tip of the of the of the valley. It's close to mountains, and so the drop is still a little is still a little more noticeable. So we have more riffle drops, and so there's just more good weightable water and where we can access fish. And so a guy can come in, get a map, point him where to go, and and um, and if they want to just kind of you know look around their own and investigate, they can find even more. But it, the key is to find public water where you can wade in where there's riffles so you can wade and, and actively access the fish with a big wide pool or, or run it gets a big river it's you know it's running 20,000 or so right now hmm. um cfs oh, wow. so if there's a place where there's no riffles or to to you know delineate where you're going to find fish where you can also wade it's not going to be good so you do really have to look for riffle drops and that sort of thing number one and once you have that you can go and you can be confident. All the riffle drops have fish. There's no hmm. question of that. The fish, as you mentioned earlier, do move around a little bit, but they're always there. And you'll notice in one spot, if you get a great hatch going on, you know, you might see, 
you know, in one riffle, you might see eight or 20 big rainbows up eating little PMB drives, that sort of thing. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of big fish eating nymphs. So it's, although I don't want to paint false expectations about the dry fly fishing because it's hit or miss here still it, when it's, when it's hit, it's really good. But typically what you do is you go into one of these ripple drops and you fish an indicator and, um, probably usually a couple nymphs and often we'll fish a, a, a large, like a rubber legs, brown mm-hmm. rubber legs on top and some sort of a smaller mayfly nymph on the bottom. And usually the drop depends on the water is going to be six to nine feet from the indicator down. Um, and you just go in and, and you cast and, and, uh, I think one of the keys that a lot of people miss is they'll, they'll fish just like they would a smaller stream, which is not bad. They'll come to the riffle and make a nice you know, upstream strip line in and then let it go below them and try again. A real key to consistently catching fish is remembering these are big riffle drops and it's at any given time, it's easy to, um, get a 60, 70 foot drift. Um, if you are willing to feed out line. So I'll cast out, make my cast, do my mending, and start feeding line. And my average average drift is 60 feet, 70 uh-huh. feet. Um, and that covers a lot of fish. Because if you just fish close to yourself, you're going to get your, your, your fly is going to be in a prime level in the water for a short distance, and you'll catch fish. But if it's at that prime distance, you know, with the indicator holding your flies in place, for 60, 70 feet, it's going to go by a lot more fish. Yeah. And it's a real key. It may sound obvious, but in a lot of smaller streams, you don't do that, right? And in this big river, you need to. Mm-hmm. And and people say, well, 70 feet, you're never going to hook a fish. Actually, it's not very problematic at all mm-hmm. with the quality of our new hooks that we have now. Um, you, know, you see your indicator go down. You set. You do learn to set pretty aggressively and quickly. But still, it, a, lot, a lot of times those chemically sharpened hooks, they'll give you a minute. They'll give you a second. You know, they'll kind of catch in a right. fish's mouth. Uh, just because they're so sharp and allow you to pick up enough run at, uh, line at 70 feet. I mean, I probably hook at 70 feet. I probably hook 50% of the fish to take my fly. That's pretty good. Hmm. Um, you know, at, at, at you know, it's, if, if it's at 30 feet, I probably hook, you know, 75%. Um, but, but still it's an important, important thing to remember. And so, hmm. um, it's a big river. And, and so mm-hmm. you want to do want to recall that and what are the- seasonally, you know, yeah, yeah so on the riffle drop, so that's basically a, just a riffle coming down and then dropping into a pool below it, and then you're fishing the slot, or yeah. you're fishing the slot down through the pool. Or, exactly. Yeah. And remember, it's on, a, it's, on a, it's on a large scale, so these riffles might be, um, you know, 50 yards wide and, and 100 yards long. So it's, you know, it's, it's a big piece of water and you, you probably won't, in most places you can't fish all of it. You can't wait to all of it, but you can fish a good amount of it. And using the long downstream feeding technique allows you to cover more than you could, you know, if you just fish close to yourself. Gotcha. So. Okay. And then, and then as far as depth, when you're getting down are, are the pools, I mean, there must be a lot of variation, but how are you setting up your, typically your length of your, you know, from, and, and what type of indicator are you using typically on that? Maybe you can just talk a little about that, that setup you use and how, how you get to the sure. right depth. Well, I'm kind of an outlier. I still love yarn. Oh yeah. So I use yarn indicators. Um, I love the way that they, they're not nervous on top of the water, like some of the little, you know, plastic floats are and yep. stuff like that. They anchor extremely well, very sensitive. You get a, a little bit of a, a fish on there. You'll see everything. You can react very quickly. Mm-hmm. The downside to yarn is that um, it takes longer to make one, to make a little indicator. Um, it's sometimes, depending on what you use, it's it's more difficult to easily adjust the depth. So because I love yarn, to be honest with you, and this is going to sound a little archaic, but I don't adjust depths. You're right. Mm-hmm. There, there, There is places where it will pay to do that, but 
normally in most of the ripples out here, I'm going to set my indicator at about seven, eight feet from my indicator to my lowest fly. Mm-hmm. And, and it just doesn't seem to be a problem. I hook lots and lots of fish. I've messed around with changing depths yep. and it is a small, it's just a small, um, improvement. But I think that if you're fishing from a boat, um, it's more important you do so because from a boat, you're fishing some, you, know, you might be fishing a 12 foot deep slot, right. then a four foot deep slot. And, and from a boat, the, the guide can quickly and easily with a, you know, with a little pigment bobber, yep. quickly adjust that depth. And it's more important from waiting. You're fishing a pretty static amount of water. You're, you know, it, it's, you're not really seeing such dramatic depth changes moment by moment. You're fishing a piece of water slowly and methodically. And if you need to change the depth at all, it may be, you know, once maybe. Um, and so generally speaking, that seven, eight foot of drop is works very, very well. And, um, I really always tell people, you know, no tapered leader below that indicator, just a short tapered leader to the indicator and all, uh, all untapered tip below that, just because it, it, it increases your sink rate, the yeah. thinner monofilament sinks quicker. And, and another place I, I'm a little different than most guides for a good reason is that, uh, I don't like to do split shot. Mm-hmm. So I use a lot of tungsten beads because yep. I find that with two tungsten beaded nymphs, I don't need the split shot. And it really gives my flies a lot better motion in the water. It just it works better. Um, however, when you're fishing with have a boat with a guide, you have to use it because you're, used, you're fishing some big heavy flows that you can't access from, from wading. And, I mean, if it's 10, 12 feet deep and heavy, you, there's no tungsten bead nymphs in the world are going to get you down out there. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a place for it, and that place is used from a drift boat. Um, but from, from guiding, from wading and riffles, you, people don't realize it, but you really don't need it. Yeah. Um, very seldomly will it improve your, your catch rate. And, mm-hmm. um, and it's a lot, it's one more thing to take out of the system that makes it easier to fish. So, yeah, yeah no, those are great. Those are great tips for sure. That makes it easy for somebody who is kind of new to it, but yes, yeah. If you can just stay at seven to eight feet for a length, that, that yep. is one less thing you have to worry about. And then get the exactly. uh, split yeah. shot out of the way. And it sounds like you're talking a little bit, I mean, we've had a little bit of Euro nymphing uh, topics on this before, but that's definitely a couple of those keys, the thin leader, the, the tungsten beads, things like that. It sounds like yep. there's a little bit. And then also on the yarn, which obviously they don't use in Euro, but uh, from a lot of the people right. I've talked to, the, especially some of the guys that know their stuff, they love yarn for that reason. So is there a yarn indicator you can just buy, you know, right out of the shop that's kind of ready to go? You guys have um, there's a couple different things. Yeah, there's um, there's one that's not actually yarn, but it's it's called the New Zealand Nymph System, and the and they sell um, these bright colors of of sheep wool, and um, I sometimes I'll just use that, especially on a smaller indicator, um, because I can use these really bright little colors. Don't necessarily have to put floating on it, although I usually do. Um, but and again, I'll I'll explain my system in a minute. But but that can work. Um, there's a couple. There is. You know, we sell some just straight yarn. The yarn I use is macrame, braided macrame yarn um, that, that people can make their own real easily out of. Um, if you don't see much anymore, though. The yarn indicator's kind of gone out of favor, and there's okay. not as much out there. Yeah. And so just real briefly so people know that sometimes people think, I don't know how to make one. You know, it's like, but it's pretty straightforward. You know, you can go to a yarn shop or you can buy it here or whatever, but you can get the braided macrame yarn, and you need a little comb, like a mustache comb. You can cut a piece off. You comb it out. So it's not braided anymore. It's just like the, mm-hmm. the fibers are, you know, separate from each other. And um, I'll usually use two colors. I'll get a yellow and an orange because in different glare situations, one will be better than the other. And you can even put a little black in there for sheet glare. Sometimes that works. And then 
I'll, I'll comb that yarn out until I get a pretty good little bunch. I'll actually just use a clinch knot to tie that into the end of my heavy tapered leader. Maybe use a seven and a half foot zero X leader and just tie it like you're trying to fly on basically with no eye clinch knot that to the end of my tapered leader and then clip it so that I've got, you know, maybe a total length of, of two inches of yarn, three inches for a real big indicator, but usually two inches total um, length. Um, and then to that, I'll put my like ink or dry fly dressing, a paste dressing out of that. And so it floats just really, really well. And then for the, the business end, from there on down, I take my four, usually I use four X on the, on the, on the, on the river out here, sometimes five X for dries, but four X is kind of the go-to. Also, I'll, I'll put four X tippet and I'll again, clinch knot that, that seven, eight, eight foot clinch knot of that mono to the tapered leader above the yarn. And then when you tighten the clinch knot, then I just slide it down to the knot. To the, to the yarn. Of course, the yarn keeps it from going anywhere. Hmm. And so that, at that point, you've got kind of a right angle system because the way the tippet attaches, it kind of is a nice right angle straight below the yarn. Um, and then I go below that. And because I don't use split shots pretty easy, I usually go down about six feet and put my first fly, which 50% of the time is the number six brown rubber legs, Not patch good. rubber legs. And, and then from there down another two feet down to my small end. And my, my, my first go-to nymph out here usually is one of my own. It's a little poxy back, or, or it's, um, you know, a, a beadhead poxy back micro, um, not micro, um, I'll get a PMD yeah. nymph. Oh, okay. It's a PMD, in, like in a size 18. Uh-huh. And that thing has been such a money fly over the years. So that's, I mean, probably 50% of the time, those are the two flies I use okay. out here. Not the, uh, not the, not the least, psycho prints? No, I, I use a cycle prints a little on the river, but not as much as you'd think. Yeah. Um, because it's become such a mayfly dominant kind of a situation out here, I use a lot of different mayfly um, nymphs. And it could be anywhere from a number 20 blue and olive all the way up to a number 12 green drake. Um, but historic, most of the time, I'm using 16s and 18s. Okay. Um, because that's the mud. There's more betas and, and PMDs than anything else. And so... You know, especially in the last four or five years, these fish have really locked on the PMDs as the PMD population has exploded. And so it's become kind of, you know, like a lot of famous rivers, that's the case. And it's kind of evolved into that here. So um, the, the big stonefly nymph, of course, has a lot of weight. It gets my fly breaks down and the small tungsten uh, mayfly, whatever you want to use, yeah. it gets down real quick too. What, what so. percentage of when you got that little setup, what percentage are taking your, your main big fly versus the other one? Across the board, I get probably 80%, 75-80% on the small fly. Yeah. Um, in the spring, when the fish are seeing more of the big salmon fly nymphs, that kicks up to maybe 40% on the big fly. Gotcha. Um, so yeah. it, it does more in the spring. But the rest of the year, they'll, you'll get the occasional fish on it, but um, it's important as an anchor. Okay. And, uh, yeah, you mentioned the New Zealand uh, nymph system and some flies. I'll, I'll put some links to all this stuff in the show notes so people can take a look at it. And, okay, uh, cool. And you also mentioned maps online on your website. If somebody wasn't able to swing by the shop, do you guys have any resources online or any recommendations on where you might? I don't know if you can find some of those maps or just, um, I guess, just in general. Are there, are there other resources that you would recommend if somebody wasn't able to get a guide and, and wanted to fish the Sacramento? Um, probably the best thing. I, I'm not. A, I should know this, but I'm not 100 percent sure. If we've got the maps online, I, I kind of don't think we do. Yeah. It's not that it's a secret. We just don't think we put them on there. But and they're 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 just hand drawn maps. They're nothing fancy. But um, I'm sure if someone called in and said, "Hey, I'm going to be, you know, going, I'm headed to head up or I'm heading to Sacramento, and and could you send me your map of 
of um, you know of, of access points and stuff like that. We could just probably just like fax it to him, that sort of thing. I know I've taken a picture and texted it to friends and stuff. Yeah. But I okay. I don't know if we've got it online or not, but we should if we it, don't. It's but, pretty cool. I'm, um, I'm actually, there's always a way. Yeah, I'm actually online. I just clicked through to the uh, the lower Sacramento River report for um, for April here. And it's got a little bit on the sure. report. Yeah, it's uh, 12,000 CFS or whatever. And then it's got um, yeah. yeah some information on the setup the rod setup, which, um, I'm assuming is, yeah, six, or what is it? A six. Do you guys like to do six weights down there? Yeah. Sixes is the money rod. Fives, if you know you're going to do dry fly fishing, but yeah. six is the great nymph rod. Okay. And do you get a little bit of uh, wind down there or what, what are the conditions typically like? Um, typically maybe a breeze. It's not typically windy. I mean, we will get wind like any place, but usually it's just on the edge of a storm now and then. So no, it's not, it's not particularly windy place. Um, a lot of the guys will use a nine and a half foot six just because they feel like it'll help the clients lift on the fish quicker and easier. I prefer waiting. I still prefer a nine footer, but, but it doesn't matter. But yeah, um, yeah not, it's in the boats. It's easy. Yeah. You know, if, honestly, if a guy can cast 15, 20 feet, get the fly out of the boat, he's going to catch fish. Right. Um, and cool. cause the guy, the guy just going to do a lot of the work for him. So, um, but if a guy's a better angler, he's going to be able to catch more fish cause he's going to be able to read the water. The guy's not going to have to move the boat around as much for him. Um, he can cover more water effectively, you know? And so, yeah, it's, it's same cool. as anywhere The better angler is going to cook more fish, but people don't need to be afraid. People who have little to no fly fishing skills, are going to hook up with some really beautiful big fish. That's Problem awesome. probably is going to be they're probably going to break them off because right. you know, they're not used to fighting big fish. But huh. it, they're big fish in, in big water. And so, you know, if you hook a fish in a heavy current, maybe a 21, 22-inch fish, and you're a novice, the guide's going to have to really work with you. And the guides are great. They'll teach you casting. They'll teach you everything during the day. It's a great learning experience. But maybe the first time or two, you'll probably learn the hard way because they're powerful fish. And with a heavy current, you know, they're probably going to hurt you. Yeah. Most people want to like clamp down and just keep them from running and right. pop them off. And you do that once or twice, you realize, okay, that's not going to work. Yep. And then you'll, the guy will say, okay, just let the hands off. Let the, you've got a good reel. Let the drag do the work. Don't worry. I can follow them, you know, and, and, uh, you'll start hooking and landing more fish. But the key being, you can be an absolute novice and, and catch beautiful big wild rainbows in the lower stack. This episode is sponsored by Deli Fresh Design, a company that makes sustainable fly fishing gear in the heart of Denver, Colorado. Deli Fresh blends old waders and recycled sailcloth with Cordura canvas to make rugged, river-tested gear such as fly wallets, sling packs, and my favorite, beer koozies. I had a great chat with Ross at Deli Fresh as I was blown away by his dedication to fly fishing and conservation. Here's a short clip of how Ross reduces waste with his personal actions and as a responsible company. But as a company, I'm trying to reduce my impact uh, by riding a bike or taking uh, the bus or shared uh, shared cars, stuff like that on uh, for commuting. And then, you know, yeah, when I go fishing, I, I'll get in a car, but I, I try to go with other people. And, and so I think there's things that as consumers that we can do on a daily basis. My own mentality of doing those things on a daily basis, like driving or, or riding a bike, uh, and then trying to see what uh, what materials I can use that reduce waste or what I'm trying to do as a person and as a company. Pretty good stuff, right? Let's support a great company doing business the right way. All of DFD's gear will help you spend more time casting and less time juggling your stuff. To see these great products, go follow them on Instagram where you can see their latest designs. Head over to delifreshdesign.com and use the coupon code WFS20 
to get 20% off your next order. That's Deli Fresh Design and the coupon code WFS20. I think you're good. So if somebody was going to roll down there, maybe grab a map, head up, head up river, um, you know, grab a just normal set trout set up and, um, you know, and then find a spot to fish. Yeah. It sounds like it's pretty straightforward. You get out there and you're, and you're nymphing down. And, and if some bugs come off, just like anywhere, you might, you might try to match the hatch. But, um, other than that, yep, anything exactly. else we're missing here to, to help that person that maybe, you know, is kind of new to it and get into their first fish down there. Um, I think, <coughs> Excuse me. I think that one thing we deal with a lot is people see how big a river is and they're immediately intimidated. They're afraid to wade. They don't know where to look. Where do I cast? And we just always tell people, again, look for the riffle drops and just have confidence that those fish are in there. And um, you just look for water that's broken, that's anywhere from three to eight feet deep. Um, and don't don't get intimidated by the size. Just cover the water thoroughly. And... Um, you know, I, I can spend, these are big runs, big riffles. I, yeah. I can spend hours on a single riffle, oh, wow. just covering it top to bottom, really covering it well. Sometimes maybe I'll go through first with an egg pattern and a small nymph and come back with two nymphs. You know, and you can fish a piece of water for quite a long time if you want, hmm. and you're not hammering fishing. You know, you don't want to camp on a piece of water. You want to keep moving, but but it's big. Yeah. And so, you know, you I, I, I like to wear studded boots out here because it's a big river and it can be a little slippery. It's it's not ledge rocks for the most part. Anything. It's mostly just you know rock, river cobble. But mm-hmm. spiked you know studs in the bottom of your boots will help you if you're afraid of the water a little bit because it's big. It'll help you a lot stick. And wading staff is good. Um, most of the time you're wading in pretty shallow water, fishing out into deeper water though. So it's and if you're if you're wading deeply, it's probably going to be pretty slow water that you're wading through to get to the better riffle water. Gotcha. So it's it's I, I never fish heavy, fast, deep water. I never wade that. Cause that's where the fish are. Yeah. So you don't have to worry about being, if you're out there to your, you know, to your belt and fast moving water, you're probably right much. in the middle of the fish. You're probably <laughs> not where you want to be. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. And are you, and are you typically working your way, uh, kind of from upstream downstream or are you working your way up? Um, it's one of those unique situations where it's almost always down from up fishing down, okay. which in a normal trout streams, it's that's, you don't want to do that. Right. But this river is so large that the fish don't really see you coming. Oh, yeah. They're spread out all over a large piece of water and, and the downstream drift with a nymph just, it just lends itself so well to doing that. Start at the top and just start fishing down long stream, you know, downstream drifts. Now, if I see fish rising, a lot of times I'll still do it down up, uh, from, I'm prepared from upstream downstream. But there are times when I feel that might spook a rising fish less if I come in from the side and then, you know, cast across and up a little bit or across and down a little bit. Uh, might not be as much of a steep downward angle as I would with a nymph. Gotcha. Okay. And and is there a little bit of, it doesn't sound like there's a, a heck of a lot of pressure down there. Is, is that not a problem? I guess it's a big mm-hmm. enough river you can find a good, uh, easy spot. It's big, exactly. The, the the size of the river for some people is a is a curse because they, they, they're intimidated by it. But it's also a blessing because it'd be hard to hurt this river. We've been fishing it. You know, we, we put out five to 15 guides a day for decades, right? And and the fishing now and the quality of the fish is better now than it ever has been. Hmm. So it's such a big river and has such a great population of rainbows that, you know, you're, you're never, you're not really going to be able to hurt it too badly. And that's the, that's the cool thing about a bigger river. And so, yeah, and, and a lot of times the water you'll fish um, um, wading is not necessarily the same water the guys from boat will fish. They're out there in the big runs where you can't reach, 
doing very well out there. Oh, okay. You're in the shallow riffle drops where they don't really go in there very much. And, you know, you know, I've, a lot of fisheries I've been on in my life because I fish the Rockies a lot in different places. You notice when fish are getting hurt, you get a lot of fish with red mouths and hook marks and they start getting gaunt and you realize, oh man, something's wrong here. These fish are getting overpressured. Never, ever seen that on lower sack. Not even close. It's rare to catch a fish with a, a, a little red spot in his mouth where he's been hooked previously. Mm-hmm. So it tells you there's a ton of trout out there. And, and the size of the water really protects them a lot. There's some water that's just too deep and heavy you really can't fish it well. And so they always do have kind of a safe haven. Um, you know, we, we fish, depending on where the flows are, we fish different water. If you're a guide out here and, you know, you're looking at flows that fluctuate over a period of time between 4,000 CFS and, and 20,000 CFS, the, the line, you know, the, the line you're going to take in a drift boat going downstream is going to be radically different. Slower flow flows to high flows. Their right. fish move around to stay in the prime feeding zone. So, from a guide standpoint, from a guy in a boat standpoint, crucial that you know those lines. You know, where, what, if I've got a river that's, you know, 40 yards across, 50 yards across, it's like, where do I flow down? Right. And so that's, that's one thing the guides so that where they do earn you, their money if nothing else right there. Yeah, where would you, I mean, if you take it and switch it to somebody maybe that has a little, little, uh, 10 foot pontoon boat and is going down there, I mean, is that a, is that a valid way to get into it and, and fish? I mean, do you see many guys with, with little pontoon boats fishing down there? Not many, but a few, and and it can very definitely be valid. I, you know, the the things that you look at are number one, are they capable of it? Because it's a big river, potentially dangerous. Oh, yeah. um, you don't want to get swept into a, a sweeper in one of those little boats. You're probably not going to survive. And there's a there's a couple really big riffle drops, giant suck holes, just giant swirl outs that are. I've been in. I've been caught in one of them with a drip boat once it brought me right to the gunwales. No kidding. Kind of frightening. You you don't you don't realize what the power that is out there. So How, uh, we're very cautious about telling what, people what to did do that. You, um I mean, what what was that like? Could you tell us like how that felt, like how, how close you were and how you got out of it from from dumping the boat? It was it was terrifying. I mean, it was basically, and I'm pretty good at the oil. I mean, I know what I'm doing. But as we go from uh, the Bonnie View exit, which is just south of I can walk there and just you know in ten minutes, just south of the shop, there's a, a boat ramp, and you can put in that Bonnie View access and float down to Anderson. That's a classic float, full day float. Um, well, just but when you put your boat in there at the boat ramp. You go downstream and take a hard right, and then as you go down that next straightaway on the right-hand side towards the bottom before the next left, there's this giant eddy, and that's where I got caught. Hmm. And you know, nine times out of ten or 98 times out of 100, you can row right through it. It's, yeah. it's impressive. You, I, you don't want to row through it, <laughs> but if you knew what you're doing, you could. Um, and so I got a little bit um, careless. I mean, it's like, I, I've been through it a million times. I said, let's, I'll just bring these people through this. Right. this big, I mean, I'm, I'm not guided, but I just had some friends with me. So we went down and rowing through that, you know, we just caught it at the wrong moment. And so um, anybody that with any sense is going to see that giant big eddy over there and say, well, stay away from that. Just go to the left side of the stream. Just don't go through it. Right. <laughs> and so, but if you don't know what you're doing, you think, oh, it's just more big water. Um, that's a problem because once in a great while, if, it, if, it, if you get caught at the wrong moment in that suckle where you get the wrong spot at the right time, tremendous downward suction, like, you know, like going down a drain. And, um, it was terrifying. I got in there and it was like, we kind of slowed down and I just noticed the boat's getting pulled down and getting deeper and deeper and deeper. 
And then I started really laying on the oars really heavy. And I wasn't really being very successful. As hard as I rode, yep. we were still getting sucked down. And it was just basically lucky. It just spit me out. Wow. Um, you know, I, I didn't really know what was going to happen, but it's at one point all of a sudden is boom, pop, we popped out of it and just went yep. on down. Yep. But that was terrifying, but it was a great reminder of the strength of this river. It's big. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, even a drift boat can conceivably get hurt <laughs> out here. So if you're going down in a pontoon boat, you better know what you're doing and you better stay away from any bad stuff, you know, gotcha. and basically the, the worst suckles in the river are right above Bonnie view. They're up to, at the, at the, you go upstream the, the, at the end of the big straightaway at the top of the bridge there is um um there is uh, one of those big giant eddy things and then the one i just described just downstream so you know within about a quarter of a mile up a quarter mile down <laughs> that's the most dangerous water in in the river for the most part in this upper river gotcha. so other than that though there's sweepers you don't want to get cut you don't want to get sucked into a sweeper because yep. that'll capsize you and that's not bad but that's not good but um, so long winded way of saying that if you're really good at a, at a little pontoon boat, you know what you're doing in big, heavy moving water. Yep. Sure. You can do it. Um, but be very Just cautious. We, we recommend against it. Gotcha. Um, and usually, who and, the, um, who owns the, um, most of that property? Is that, uh, is that uh, like public BOM land or, you know, generally is it, uh, fair, is it all public? It's no, it's not all public. A lot of it's privately owned by private homes. Okay. Along a lot of it's just private homes, but there is some pretty good swaths of public um, access too. Up again, mostly in Reading. Um, as you go down, like there's from 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 Anderson down, the, the a lot of roads leave the river, so it's hard to have any place where the road hits the river where you can access it. Oh, okay. Up in Reading, boat, there's roads because but, there's a lot of people. But if you have a boat, you can just yeah. hop in and float and fish wherever yep. you want. Exactly. There's a number of different really good drifts. From from basically from Reading to Red Bluff, it's just several drifts in there you can take. Okay. Um, okay. And so yeah, it's if, if you were you know, so if you're going down again, it seems like you know this huge river. I mean, a lot of times in some of the bigger rivers, you say fish. You know, don't you don't have to fish further than thirty feet off the bank, and, and you know, and that's a good way to separate. Is is that the way this river is? Or are you fishing? You know, a good chunk of the river. I mean, I'm just trying to narrow it down. If somebody you know finding those little um, ripple oh, drops, yeah, how, yeah, 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 it's. It's going to change a lot. It's, there's no easy answer. The experience is huge. But but having said that, the most obvious thing is you're looking for seams. So there's going to be various seams across, you know, all these this big wide river. But generally speaking, if you can find one where you think the river is probably going to be, or you know, can see it, is going to be, you know, six to eight feet deep, and you've got a pretty good seam where um, you don't have a situation where. 12 inches one way, it's too fast, and you can't get a good drift. 12 inches the other way, it's too slow, and you can't get a good drift. I mean, if you have a wide seam, maybe a 10-foot a wide swath of the river that's all in that perfect, not too slow, not too fast flow, that's going to be something to really look for. And there's always going to be places, most of the river, that there's water that's too heavy and too deep. No, okay. It's usually in the middle. Not always, but, gotcha. but a lot of that water out there, you, just, you can't really effectively fish it. Yep. Um, and a lot of it's towards the shore, it gets too slow. Um, and maybe it's too shallow. So there's going to be, there's going to be some water that's, that's good. And what, with the, the, the advantage of the drift boat is that a lot of the river that's no good for wading, it's too deep to wade. Mm. It's, there's no riffle drop, no real delineation of good holding water. You can fish all that easily from a boat. And of course boats, you know, you're going down fast. The guides don't stop. They just keep fishing all yeah. day. And so even if, even if I have 15 boats going down, 
that's not that much pressure on the railroad. It's because they're constantly moving. They're not stopping and hammering one spot over and over and over again. Um, or very seldom will. It, it'd have to be a pretty desperate day for them to do that because the fish are spread out everywhere. So yeah, if you look for that, if you look for that seam, and the wider the seam, the better. Um, that's always going to be kind of a money spot. Okay. Um, that's a it's a simplification, but it, it gives it an idea. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. I think we're doing a good job here. So, and I want to jump in a little bit on the fight tying. I know you've done. You've got some patterns out there that, uh, you know, are pretty popular mm-hmm. patterns. And I did hear you mention something about, it's pretty inter- interesting how you talked about your, your strategy for paring down, you know, your flies, starting out with something that's kind of oh, yeah. big, bigger and bulky. And get, can you talk a little bit, I don't know, and also maybe, I'm not sure if you have some fly tying tips. I always like to hear if there's tips. It's not always an easy thing to throw out there, but I think that pairing them down is a good tip. <laughs> maybe you could talk about that, and then if you have any other tips for somebody who, who maybe struggles a, li- a little bit with tying. We are tying is I love tying. Um, I, I really enjoy the the the, um, the mystery of it. Not ever knowing for sure what's going to work. I mean, what might look good to us might be useless in the water, and what might look horrible to us that just turns the fish on. You never know. And and so uh, I I'm I never production tie anymore. Just that's like slow death to me. I don't want to. Hmm. My dip sitting down on a vice and turning out four dozen flies. Did, did you? Know, you just, did you I don't want to do that. Did you production uh, yeah, tie for a long time? I did for years. For years, I did production tying and and on as a sideline. You know, to make extra money and yeah. and it was great. It was a great. I mean, I mean, I was so happy that I had that that ability to make extra money doing that. But at some point, you just burn out. At least yeah. I did. Yeah. And it's like I never want to do that. But I had the 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 challenge of imitating. You know, of, of coming up with new patterns is still strong. I love doing that. And I think the key to that probably for me is what do the fish see? That's what the bottom line is that, you know, there's something that engenders the confidence of a fish to take some flies better than others for some reason. What is that? You know, what, what are they seeing that tells them, okay, that's safe. To some extent, it's a fish with a size, a brain, the size of a pea hmm. and they're eating sticks and rocks all day long. So, you know, that that's not a perfect science, but um, you know, there, there are definitely flies that seem to work better than others. And, mm-hmm. and, um, um, like my missing link dry fly yeah. came up with probably eight years or so ago. And that thing's been just crazy effective. And, um, and to look at it, it's not the most impressive looking fly. It's like, it's kind of a, kind of a frail looking little thing. It doesn't really look like much. Um, but yeah, you're fishing and it's incredibly productive for the most difficult fish. And of course, easy fish. And so you can't always rely on, what looks what what the bins are most full of at the fly shop what most flies look like you got to get in the fish's head a little bit and say what is the fish seeing and how can i most accurately imitate that and of course fish see differently than us they see colors different so i think they were a little bit lost when we said okay i've got to perfectly match this olive hue to this blue olive or else you know it's not going to work and that's probably not the most important thing yeah. can't hurt you know right i mean use every trigger you can get but but i think that if you get um, if you know why it is the fish is eating a certain life stage of an insect, what it is that's triggering that feed? Is it is it the uh, is it the trapped air bubbles in the shuck? Is it the wings blowing out of the shuck? Is it you know, what is it? What is it that, that mm. excites the fish? That is what you can incorporate into fly. And you mentioned the the kind of reductive process of tying that I do sometimes. And that is when you when you're like a fly innovator, like well, what I like to do. Um, you you start with an open slate, right? You don't you don't say, okay, I'm I'm going to do this and this and this. I'm going to stick to what everyone else does because we know that works. I'm going to try to do something outside of the box. 
And usually, I'm the kind of guy that commercial tires hate because I'm going to start with a lot of potential triggering features, meaning a lot of my flies have a lot of steps, which is not much fun to tie. <laughs> for me, because I don't have to do it anymore, I don't care. I'm looking for what's going to work the best. And so I'll, very often I'll start with a fly and say just off the top of my head, maybe I have um, 12 steps built into a fly, 12 different unique steps. And then I'll go out. I said, I get to where it looks good to me. It's like, okay, this is what I had in my head. This is the reason I designed it this way. Everything in this fly has a purpose in my mind. That's what I like. And I'll go out and fish it. And if it fishes really well, it's like, great, it works well. But then I'll take a step out. I'll say, well, maybe I'll take this rib off. I'll take this little piece of the thorax out. I'll take whatever. I'll take some out of it. And mm-hmm. does it still fish? And, and, and it'll, if it still fishes great, I'll take another one out. And very often, you know, it's surprising or not surprising to a lot of people that maybe that fly fishes just as well with seven steps as it does with 12. And so, you know, I, I, I like all those steps, but I found I can't get too married to them. I have to really be realistic. What is it? And in that process, I've discovered some, some interesting things about what it is the fish like. It's not always what people think. A lot of times really goofy looking things um, are extremely productive. I mean, look at beadheads. Yeah. When beadheads first came out, I said, that's ridiculous. Right. No fish is going to eat that. That'll never last. <laughs> and now, you know, 20 yeah. years later, it's the biggest thing in their fishing. Right. And so people looked at it like, it's stupid. A gold bead? Come on. That's yeah. dumb. It doesn't look like anything you, I've ever seen. The fish aren't going to like it. Do you ever use yeah. a, um, a non-bead uh, much for nymphs? You know, I, I, I would like to say that I still use them a lot. But the truth is, I don't use them a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, there are times when they're better. You know, maybe in shallow or slow water, maybe where fish are pressured with bead heads. Yeah. There are times when it's a better fly. But I found myself slipping into that bead head mindset and yep. being so successful with it that I just like, I there's times when I think, maybe I should try one without, and then I don't. Yeah. And I'm <laughs> successful, so it perpetuates itself. That's it. But I, I do see an occasion that it's better without. Okay. So. And, um, yeah, so I'm just looking at the missing link here and I'll put a link in the show notes for somebody, um, for folks out there to take a look. But I mean, it looks a little like an elk hair caddis, definitely a different slant on it. Um, can you describe, you know, maybe how many steps are involved in the missing link and, and the process that, that went into that and then how, how it is different from a, like, because most people probably know what an elk hair looks like. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So when I went about to, to, to tie it, what I was doing, I was fishing the lower sack and the lower sack in the summer has these fantastic um, caddis. It's usually not hatches to me. They can be, but a lot of times it's egg-laying caddis. And as it gets darker, it gets more and more caddis sit on the, on the water to, to lay their eggs, and they die. And so very often, real late in the evening, you've got a majority of fish up just in a feeding frenzy, just gulping these dead caddis like crazy. So I was like, that's what I want to imitate. I, I, for 30 years, I'd not had, I hadn't been consistent. When I was a hero, I'd catch eight big fish. Next night, zero. Same fly, seeming everything's the same. And so I was really trying to, I was up against this nut. I was trying to get past this. And so I think, okay, I'm just going to try to imitate a dead or dying caddis. And so to try to really capitalize on this amazing fishing situation. <coughs> and so I thought, you know, what do those cats look like? I, I caught them, you know, get a net, go out there and catch them and look at them. And, and that's, a, <coughs> that's a useful thing when you're mm-hmm. tired. Um, and I'd see that they're like very desiccated. They weren't, a lot of them were kind of shriveled up. They're dying, you know, they're, they'd spent themselves. And so, and a lot of them would have, um, little hairs and stuff on the abdomen. So there'd be a little air bubble sometimes trapped on there. It looked a little bit of flash. 
Um, but for the most part, they were just messy little used up pieces of garbage, you know, and, and, but yet the fish were on them because it's such an easy food source, not a strong food source, but there was a lot of them. And so I sat down at the vice and I thought, okay, well, I want that kind of thin desiccated looking abdomen with, without, with a little bit of flash for air bubbles. So I put a, a flash rib over a thread body to keep it real thin. And I realized, well, the first fish is going to chomp right through that flash rib and ruin the fly. So I put soft text over the the abdomen so it wouldn't you know that wouldn't happen and you could use loon i now i usually use loon uv like flow the, the, the uv mm-hmm. stuff works great doesn't smell and it works well so but anyway i, I wanted a covering i wanted a little bit of a of a sense of depth to the body i didn't want it just i not i wanted it to look a little translucent like a real bug's body but i wanted it thin and like not much and so i figured okay there's a dead caddis body and I come forward and I thought, you know, one of the big features of this fly is going to be I want down wings on it. Uh, not the traditional delta wing. A lot of guys will tie a, a dead cat with delta wings, and that works fine. And this is close to delta wings, but what are the, basically what are the I like Zelon. What is the delta wing? Delta wings are kind of like at a, at a 45 angle out from the body, and usually typically guys would use um, like hen, hen wings, yeah, stuff like that, like hen, hen spinner wings, very much like a um, an old hen spinner mayfly pattern might be or they might use different things for the wings but they kind of have them down wings but i don't know sometimes use deer hair but a lot of times i've used those and again i really ran across very inconsistent uh, success rate so i wanted to use zelon wings because i've always found zelon is something about it it's one of those magic things that engenders confidence in the fish so i was going to do um zelon down wings not unlike a mayfly spinner except i was going to have them more tilted towards the back not straight out the side at right angles to the hook shank. And so I did that. And, um, and then there's a little, I put a little dubbing ball, um, at the end of the abdomen, right where I, and I put the wings, sea long wings ahead of that, because I found that if you just tied sea long wings on and didn't have a little spreader, something to keep the wings apart, they would just fold in and they look like the hook shank. Oh, yeah. They just look like a little nothing. Yeah. So putting a little dubbing ball in there, kept the wings out to the sides a little bit and it, it kept them separate so the fish could see oh there's something different there's down wings mm-hmm. like a dead cast but that fly would be absolutely invisible on the water if the angler could never see that so i put i i basically took ralph cutter's design of uh an, an care wing with a parachute hackle and we're all borrowing from each other i mean yeah. there's this is not very much oh, yeah. new, but I'd always admired that fly because Ralph's a great tire, and that fly had caught me a lot of fish. Huh. So I borrowed that design with a with a elk wing and then a parachute hackle and put that in front. Um, and um, I did one thing I did was that the, the front of the elk hair, I, I left the front ends as I go over the hook eye, kind of a little bit long and blunt. And then when you when you wrap the hackle, the those blunt ends and the, the the back wing goes over the top, the elk hair um, tips, they all kind of fold it. They almost end up going straight up in yeah, the air. Exactly. And at first I thought, that's kind of weird, but I always <laughs> thought I'd be able to see it. I've come to realize that actually is a great silhouette for an upwing. Oh, yeah. And, and a slight tangent, to go a slight rabbit trail, what I found is that I end up, more, more fish take the missing link as a mayfly than do for caddis. But anyway, oh, yeah. so that, that, that wing silhouette ended up turning, again, a mistake, but it, but it turned out perfect. And so, anyway, so that's basically it. It's a yeah. relatively simple. That's cool. Not much to it. You know, it doesn't dry your eyes when you look in a fly bin. And so I went out and brought that fly out, and uh, I never changed it because the, the, the results were dramatic. Mm-hmm. Well, the first night we went out, and I, I hooked every single fish I cast to, <laughs> every one. 
Wow. And it's like, oh, wow. <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe that was just one of those good nights, right? I've had those before. The next night I went out, same thing, every fish. Yeah. This went on for months. It's like, <laughs> this is crazy. But I think the biggest thing was when I brought it to the Rockies. I go to the Rockies every year and fish Montana every year. And I went out and fished the fire hole one day, and there was a bunch of these highly selective little 12-inch fish. I mean, tough. These were like Henry's Fork fish, even though they're only 10 or 12 inches. And they were eating beta snips, uh, beta dries. And I put on like a, a size 16, one of these missing links, because the fish were kicking my butt. Hmm. And everything I was using that was a 22, which accurately, accurately met, imitated what they were eating, I was just getting refusals. Hmm. But I noticed there were some white millers, some caddis flying around. So I said, well, I'll put on my missing link size 16. It's like three times bigger than they're four times bigger than the actual mayfly. I put it out there and proceeded to catch like every fish out of this, these ponds. No it's like, what in the world? These fish are eating 22s and they take this 16 dry like it was their last meal. Yeah. So I started realizing there's something different here. What I designed it for, it was good for, but it's a way bigger picture. And so I started realizing that the fish took it for a mayfly. And when I started looking at it with those different eyes, I realized, oh, that that, that abdomen that I designed to be a, a thin, desiccated cat's abdomen, these fish are eating that as a shuck. Um, there's no tail on the fly. And so they're eating that as a, as a, as a mayfly shuck. And it makes sense because huh. you've got this tightly ribbed, dark body ribbed with, with a flash. And so it looks, it has just, it looks exactly like a mayfly shuck that's, that's so segmented, you know, oh, yeah. and it looks perfect for that. I never thought of that until afterwards, but and then the rest, you know, the way that the downwings are, well, that could be an emerging mayfly that because they have downwings like that when they emerge a lot of times momentarily, uh -huh. that could be a spinner, that could be a lot of spit stages of the, of the mayfly. And then the upwing with the up, um, you know, silhouette looks like a freshly emerged mayfly or caddis yep. as far as that goes. Wow. And so it just covers so many bases as it turns out. I wasn't smart enough to design it that way, but I was lucky enough that I just came up with that design and it works so well for everything. That's cool. And I always tell people it's literally, I use that dry fly and dry fly, any dry fly situations outside of really big flies. I use that easily 80% of the time, easily for anything, any mayfly, caddis, midge, terrestrial, anything. It's just crazy effective. And so that, I mean, people know me from my nymphs. I've been doing nymphs for years and I love the tight nymphs and I've had a lot of great ones, but I think this is probably, even though it was just a fluke, it was probably the most uh, dramatic thing I've probably ever come up with. And, and again, it was, yeah, I can't take much credit. I mean, it yeah. didn't end up being good for what I designed it to be, but that just opens up. You know, we have to remember this mystery. Of this is a lot of things we don't see with our eyes that the fish sees. And with a missing link, they take that thing with such huh. endless uh, positiveness. It's like, they just come up and eat it. They, they, they don't pause even hard fish. And so it tells me there's something in there. I may not even understand what it is yet, right. but there's something in that design that they really, they feel comfortable with. It looks right. And they eat it. Yeah. Um, and, so, and what is yeah. the, uh, and what is the, the naming on uh, the missing link? What, what is the, what, what is the missing link? Well, yeah, that, that I didn't admit name with that immediately. Cause I just, I've, I've had some stupid name for it. first, just my own working name, like dead caddis or something right. like that. You know, yeah. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was just a working name. And then, when I started realizing, oh, hey, wait a second, there's this is this is filling a lot of those niches that we're not necessarily filling with the fly designs. Uh, that's where the name came up. It was like it's a little bit of that, a little bit of that. It's that missing link between all the standard patterns now that are used that are effective, yep. and and it's proven that it's 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 effective in all these different realms of of fishing. And so it's kind of like a missing link pattern, something that uh, you know attaches the known to the unknown.
Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Well, that gives you a good example or gives, gives me a good example of, yeah, the process and a fly that works really well. Um, I was wondering if we could jump into, I guess, a little bit more of a, a kind of a rapid fire round here to, to kind of wrap things up. Uh, I, I always start with sure. a little bit on, and you've talked about maybe your top two flies, but I like to go into kind of your top two flies, top two tips and top two resources. And, and we're talking about the Sacramento, the lower sack and, and trout and rainbow. So do you have any other flies you'd recommend or have you already mentioned your two that your go-to flies? Yeah, I mean, and we could even, it might be worthwhile to, to pick a mountain stream too, because to, it's very different. But, oh, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I mean, most of the time on, on the lower sack, when I'm nymphing, an awful lot of time, it's rubber legs and a, a pox back PMBA, an awful lot of time. Now I will, you know, if there's a, if I get out there and there's a, um, a betas hatch or something like that, I'll go down to a little 20 betas nymph mm-hmm. or whatever. You have to be careful because they're big fish and heavy flows. Those better be tied on a pretty heavy little hook even though they're dries, you know, or in the, or nymphs either way, because, you know, 20 inch fish, heavy flows, number 20, that's a small hook. Right. Um, so you have to be a little careful, but generally speaking, even on the lower sack, I tend towards smaller rather than larger. I tend to use other than the big fly. Uh, I tend to use a lot of 18s and I see a lot of people using 14s and 16s and that's good. They work. There's certainly a place for them. And mm-hmm. honestly, out of a boat, it makes a lot of sense because an 18 out of a boat, you're going to open up a lot of hooks. Um, but from a weighing standpoint, it's like a smaller stream, you know, you're bringing, you're letting the fish run, you bring them in and you, you don't have a tremendous amount of current involved there because you're in a riffle drop somewhere and, you know, they might go out in a heavy current, but then they'll quickly come back into the softer water mm-hmm. as you fight them. So you can get away with smaller flies and, and, you know, and I would add that to the list, the missing link for the dries. Mm-hmm. That's I use virtually hundred percent for any hatch that comes up out here. Okay. And that's, that's my short list. Gotcha. You know, that's, there's. A lot of my box is full of flies, and I use them all at one point or another. But if I if someone had to go out there and just use two flies, you know, for nymphs, that would be the two I tell them to do. And there could be there's something better, but you know, across the board, across the season, those are going to be consistent. Gotcha. Okay. And then what about your top two uh, tips? So you could just talk maybe generally uh, fly fishing, or if you wanted to get specifically on nymphing, do you have a couple of tips that come to mind? You might somebody who's out there for the first time time yeah i would say that um you probably if you're out there for this time you don't have any confidence right no. you're going to be saying i don't know what i'm doing right. this right i don't know what so it's going to really behoove you to understand in any given piece of water where the fish lives that's huge mm-hmm. because once you get a little bit of confidence that once you know okay this is where the fish is going to live say i'm on a cloud or a smaller river and you've got a heavy rapids flattens out into a nice riffle then goes into a pool and then goes into a shallow tail out, and then goes into the heavy rapids. Okay, you look at it, it's like, okay, where are the fish going to be? I'll look, if I'm a new guy, it all looks the same. They could be anywhere, yep. you know? What you, and, and, and so what you learn is that where the fish is going to be is going to depend on two things, where the food is going to be the best, and where it's going to be brought to him the easiest, and where he's going to have the most cover from mossprays and predators, stuff like that. So always, you know, when you're given a given piece of water, and it's a real generalization, but if I go into that situation in McLeod or the upper sack, something like that, I look at that riffle because um, most of the time those riffles are going to be pretty deep. Remember, they came out of a heavy, deep, kind of a raging rapid, which is too heavy to fish. And it's the interim between that and the slow pool, where the slow pool can be good, but again, the fish can be can be kind of feel a little bit, um, Spooky. you know, uh, yeah, they, 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 the osprey can see them. The, yeah. uh, they might be easier for an otter to catch them in that kind of water. 
But in the in Riffle, they've got broken water overhead, so the Osprey can't see them nearly as well. It's all broken. They've got a conveyor belt of food coming out of the heavy water into the into the re- relatively heavy water. Um, it's just constant food, and usually the biggest fish is going to be at the top of that chow line because he wants the first shot at it, and he's going to be in the most prime spot. And then and then you've got you know you've got some depth usually in that Riffle, so um, again it just makes him feel less conspicuous, less. Uh, you know, available to predators. And so um, very often that's going to be it. But so, you know, if you just take one simplistic rule, go to the heavy riffle at the top of a run. There's always going to be fish in there no matter what. It's going to be there. There are exceptions. I mean, if you get a big hatch, sometimes those fish in the riffle might drop back in the pool, might drop back in the tail out. And you're going to see it then because you'll see it rising um, most of the time. And so that's a little more obvious. But you know, knowing where the fish are, it's going to be huge because yeah, it's true that 90% of the water, the 10% of the water has 9% of the fish. And so if yeah. you can work on that confidence factor, um, that's a big, big deal. Okay. Um, other, yeah. And so, and, and, uh, um, and I was going to say the, um, I was just thinking as far as resources, if you had, uh, we talked a little bit about some, some different resources, but do you have a, like a, maybe a favorite book magazine or, you know, video or something out there that you kind of is a resource? I mean, obviously you've been doing this, you're your own resource, but anything along the way, or maybe you can even speak to mentors, people that have helped you kind of get to where you are. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, mentors are great. If you can find somebody to walk you through it, that's the best case scenario because, a lot of times, most mentors are learning too as they go along. They may know a lot, but and so it's a double learning process. They'll actually teach themselves as they're teaching other people. So that's a win-win. I love mentoring; it's the best. Yeah. Um, outside of that, you know, you can you can hire a guide for a day, and if you do that, though, if if you're if we have a lot of people take our guides, that's all they do. They you know they're busy schedules. They don't have a lot of time off. They just want to come up and maximize the number of chances they're going to have to catch nice fish. And that's totally legit. That's great. And for them, just getting a guide every time is perfect. You know, yeah. everybody, it's a win-win. Sure. If your mindset, though, is that you don't have a ton of money, but you want to take kind of a, a, a magnum step forward in your understanding of how to be successful in this game, um, even just a one-time guide can be very, very useful. What you want to be careful of, though, is you don't just – you want to be careful. You want to make sure that guy knows what you want. Um, because he's probably going to just assume you want to catch as many fish as you can. But if you tell him, no, no, that's good. I want to catch some fish, but I want to learn from what you know in that in your mind. You know, I want to go to water that's going to be like water that I'm going to fish on my own in the future. So maybe it's not the lower sack. Maybe it's a, a mountain stream or whatever. Whatever sure. you you're going to maybe it's a steelhead river. Whatever. But when you take that guide, um, make use of him. I mean, assuming you're going to be doing most of it on your own from that point on, really ask him a ton of questions, you know, just drill him. He doesn't care. It's fine. He's, he's paid either yeah. way. And the really useful part of that guy, I think more than just catching fish is what's in his head. You alluded to it. It's like people are starting. They don't have anything in there. They don't know. No. But a person that's been out a long time has got a wealth of information in there. And most of us are more than happy to pass it on. It's like, sure. I mean, it's fine. I mean, yeah. And so understanding where you're going to be fishing the most in the future and really mining that guide for that information can gotcha. be very useful. Great. Did, did you great have what, along all the years, I mean, you must've had in, in the shop there along the way, some, some people that, that helped you. Is there, is there a name of one person that was kind of a bigger than life sort of person, or I'm not, I'm not even sure who's, who's running the shop or who's owned the shop over the years or how that's all worked, but is there somebody that sticks out I mean, as a big was, influence? 
Yeah, there, well, there was two owners to start with, and about 10 years in, one owner's bought the other out. So it's for the last 30 years, so it's been one owner. But oh, wow. I think that if I looked at mentors, probably came before the shop. Um, there was a guy when I lived in Chico by name of Denton Hill, and Denton's gone now. But Denton was one of these large-in-life guys back then when fly fishing was in its infancy. Denton was traveling all over the world fishing crazy jungle fishing and doing all mm. this crazy stuff, some of which is still considered edgy, sketchy stuff yep. he was doing when there was no infrastructure or very little. And so then for whatever reason, kind of took a, took me under his wing and, and I just looked up and was like, wow, this guy fish all over the world. I mean, I'm, I'm excited to fish Chico Creek for smallmouth bass, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, uh, he would, he would show me flies. He, you know, he just showed coffee, you know, like he wanted me to succeed. And so it wasn't like we spent a lot of time together, but, um, he was, like you said, one of those larger than life feature fit kind of guys, figures, and he would just encourage me and say, you know, well, this, I fish this local creek too. This is what I use, you know, and yeah. try this or, <laughs> and, and, um, he encouraged my flight time back then. He said, man, like you're, you've got an act this. I don't tie for my flies are rough, you know? And, right. and so that encouragement is really a cool thing. And, and so he was, you know, one of the mentors that there definitely stands out in my mind is like okay. that guy, he, I wasn't, I was a, you know, a 14 year old, nothing, just yeah. some kid, you know? And, and he was like the leading edge and, fly fishing, you know, the international, um, fishing mm-hmm. back, but which was very almost non-existent even back then. And so, yeah, yeah I'm always, I'm huge on mentors in which, any part of life, which but you've, that was good. You've done a lot of that by now too, right? You've traveled around kind of Argentina around the world and hit some spots. Um, yeah, yeah, do what, a lot. what would you tell somebody who is sitting there and maybe listen to this, but they've, you know, mostly only been trout fishing and kind of think like maybe they're not, you know, too interested in the, the saltwater stuff or getting out, you know, what would you tell somebody like that as far as, you know, now that you've traveled and have you done some saltwater fishing? Oh, yeah, tons. Yeah. I fished everywhere. Fit, yeah. So many the years I've been doing a long time. So one of the first questions I always have for them is, what is it you want out of this trip? Because that's the key, right? Yeah. You know, I've got a lot of guys that, that just want to catch the biggest trout of their life or the, the, the biggest bonefish of their life or whatever it is, and that, that's their mindset. And other guys want to catch, I don't care, I don't need big fish, I just want to catch a bunch. I want to have fun every day, catch 30 fish, whatever it is, you know. So really let them ask them what they, they want. And often in that process, I come to realize they don't really know what they want. Like a guy has heard about Alaska all his life. And I want to go to Alaska before I die. I want to experience this amazing country and do it. And so he calls me. I say, great. All right. Let's, I mean, then we start talking. It's like, there's a lot of opera, There's a lot of options. You know what? Are you looking to catch salmon or trout or, um, you know, Dolly Varner within that? Do you want to catch trout on egg patterns or skated moss patterns or, you want to catch king salmon or silver salmon? So there's all these questions that go into a trip like that, and most people have never thought about it. They don't know what they don't know what to ask, and so that's kind of the fun part is because you get in and they think, oh man, really? I can catch a trout on a mouse pattern? That's right. amazing! And I want to go there, right? <laughs> that that's what's going to spin my wheels, and so that's the fun part. But I guess you know a lot of people they don't need to take international trip. They they love their home water, and that's they're completely content there. Yep. But a lot of people are not. They love that, but they there's some this kind of unsettling sense. He's like, man, I miss it. I want to try something new and exciting. And at that point, it's just you know the best thing is to talk to someone who's done it all, yeah. and so knows all the advantages, disadvantages, knows why you might like salt or might not like salt, why you you know maybe want to go to Alaska or you might want to go to Kamchatka, you might want to go to South America. You know, it just there's so many different options that if this is a one-time trip or the first of many. Um, 
they're regardless they're they're expensive and they're big they're big trips you know they take a fair amount of time and there's a lot involved so you don't want to even if you're gonna do a lot you think in your life you don't want to waste one um no. and so it's really valuable to to talk to someone who's who's who has that wide scope of understanding and and has done it all and knows and knows why people like certain things don't like other things and knows sure. what questions to ask you so what's your yeah. um as we wrap up here i was just kind of curious you know i've talked to you know, a bunch of, you know, now with over 75 episodes, people that have been in all ends of the fly fishing, you know, kind of world. Yep, yep. Um, you've been doing it as long as probably some of the, the biggest ones I've talked to. I mean, what is your, as you look into, you know, the, the future here, what, what are your plans for, um, are you going to continue um, travel in the world? I mean, do you, do you have any specific plans over the next, you know, as you think of towards, you know, retirement or whatever that looks like down the line? Yeah, probably no retirement. I like the job too much, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Well, what we see, I and mean, we have five five guys here that just dedicated to selling travel, and we all travel a lot. You have to. Yeah. And how, so, how much do you travel? Every much, one of us. How much do you travel per per year or per, per season or per? Mm, yeah. Usually two to six weeks a year. Okay. Um, and that's and then that's and then that's you know you'll go to maybe you'll take a two week trip and you'll see four lodges or four different places in the same geographical area that sort of thing that's that's most typical. Okay. Um, so and then we all have our, our our favorites too. For example, I'm more of a trout guy. I love everything. I love permit bonefish tarpon. I love steel. I love everything. Yeah. But if you cut me open, trout come out. Right. I just <laughs> I just love trout. Yeah. And so um, I mean I could go wherever I want, but my specialty here is New Zealand, South America, Alaska, places where you find, you know, yeah. trout. And so that's, and some of the guys in here, they're, they're saltwater. They, you cut them open, permit fall out, you that's know? Right. And so it, it just kind of depends on what you want. But personally, I'm a, I mean, both personally and professionally, the, one of the realities of this job is you have to keep finding new cool places. Mm-hmm. And so like recently, I just found this place in, uh, in Lao. I helped, I helped start a little bit. Uh, a place in Alaska has amazing salmon fishing. It's on the peninsula, so it's a raw, rugged country. Nobody out there. And we worked with this guy who's out there, out there, been out there for years, and he just wanted to start this operation. So we just happened to get together and talk, and, and it's amazing. It's just incredible fishing. As you can get, as the king salmon runs in Alaska are going away, essentially, his fishing out there is as good as it has ever been anywhere. Hmm. Um, and, and just the country is so amazing. So places like that, it's really incumbent on us to continue to push the envelope, continue to find new cool places. And of course it's fun for us. And, and for every amazing spot we find, we'll find two that are less than amazing, you know, so you just have to do your due diligence. But for most of us here in the shop, we're excited about trying new, excited stuff, new stuff. And to be honest, so is our audience. Um, the tried and true stuff, will always stay full. I mean, there's always the places that have proven themselves for 20, 30 years. They're great. They're, they couldn't be any better for what they are. Um, and so they'll always stay full. I mean, it's not a problem to keep those places full and people happy, but there's always the contention of people that want the next new cool stuff. And we're at the front of line. We like that. Right. So yeah. um, that's kind of, as I look ahead, you know, as this world shrinks and because it becomes less and less, new options, you know, what's that going to look like? Where are we going to find new stuff? And as we, you know, fish crazier and crazier places in the world and find fish, um, it's exciting. Yeah. You know, there'll, there'll still be new cool places when I'm dead and gone. And that's the good part of it. So, gotcha. yeah, that's, so you know, I, and so people, I, yeah. Yeah. So I guess thinking, you know, back to that kind of the initial part of that question, just on the, and I think of, 
you know, Jeff Courier, who I had on, I, you know, all the, yeah. answers, cause I've asked this question a few times about, you know, what, what is, what does it look like, you know, kind of either life after fishing or just retirement sort of thing. And I asked that because I have people on this that are just starting out. Right. And they're, and they, they're just yep. trying to become a guide and want to get into the fly fishing, you know, yep. you know, industry or whatever, however you call it. And, and I think it's good to hear yep. people on the other end of the bed and Jeff Courier, his answer was, he was talking about maybe buying a camper and traveling, just living out of that, right? And 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 going down to Mexico during the time, and then doing the fly fishing. Yeah. Circuit. And you know, and so there's one way, right? I mean, there's one way to that. Then you got to think yeah. Oliver White, you know, and then for Jeff, yeah, for Jeff, for Jeff, that's retirement because he's such a crazy man. So exactly, and then so, Oliver, so, yeah, then Oliver, yeah. and he's got a different story where you know I don't know exactly yeah. where he's going, but he's you know got a lodge kind of thing he's working on. You know, I'm just curious, what does it look like when you, you know, you're in a fly shop? Um, I mean, do you pretty much, is it a, um, you're in the fly shop and that's kind of, uh, you know, traveling around? Is that kind of the, the end of the story or do you see other things that, that yeah. come up? I mean, I guess, have you ever done any repping and that sort of stuff? Is that, that a different deal, right? No, never have. I've, I've had really good friends who are reps and it's a tough way to make a, a living. Yeah. You can make a good living, but it's not easy. And, you know, I've raised two daughters now and they're not out of the house and married and no, different things. Well. And so they're. So, so, um, you know, it's, I'm at a stage now where potentially I have more free time. I do a lot of mentoring in my personal life outside of fly fishing. So that's become a real, a real passion for me, but oh, cool. I still do. I love to, I love to mentor fly fishing too. Yeah. There's a lot of guys and girls that, well, especially young women that, that want to do it, you know, but that maybe they were, maybe their brothers always got to go fishing and they never did. And the more I hang out with women that want to fly fish, the more I see that same passion I had that everybody has. And I love to encourage that because they come at it a little differently. You know, it's our guys tend to be a little more competitive. Um, not necessarily, but on average women maybe come into it, looking at something a little different. Um, and sometimes I think maybe they get it right earlier on because a lot of times when you come up from a typical guy standpoint, as you get older and you start appreciating what this fly fishing thing is, what it brings to the table, what it, that space inside you that it, that it creates, it's beautiful. Um, you start realizing, well, I don't need to be competitive. I'm going to enjoy every moment of every day, no matter what happens, you know? Yep. And I see a lot of women, they kind of get that from the first. Um, and they just really enjoy it. And they, and they like that same thing as we do. So they like to be the social part. we go out with friends and have a blast and fish together and tell stories and have a beer. And they love that, but they also love going out on their own and just being all by themselves and, nobody out there and just learning kind of like I did as a kid, you learn by failure right? and, and, and go out there and learning on their own. And maybe they take a guide once in a while and take a little, you know, jump up in their learning curve and stuff. But there's something beautiful about that learning curve, learning on your own that is pretty powerful and yeah. it, it can't be duplicated with a guide. A guide has a, is a great thing and it can help a lot, but something about being an organic part of the learning process is powerful. And, so anyway, yeah, yeah, no, I don't, I think I'll be here till I drop and, and, but, but for me, mentoring has become a really big part of my life, it, whether it be fishing or otherwise, but that's what sustains me. Go. No, that's awesome. Um, I, for me, I don't have to. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that you totally, yeah. You see, you answered it there. That's the thing. So if we come back in, uh, whatever time that I'd live, we'll probably still find you in the shop, which is, which is great. No, I appreciate yeah, more than likely. That, that's yeah. awesome. That's, that's, that's cool. Okay. Well. <laughs> Mike, that's about all I have for you. Just want to, a couple, uh, just one wrap-up question here in the next six to twelve months. Anything you want to let us know you got coming up, or the shop, or you know, you personally, or anything new coming up we can expect from you? Um, you know, more just 
you know, we've got some um, from the shop per se. Again, I'm in the travel part of the department, but mm-hmm. in, in the shop. But we've got some amazing new places. The place in Alaska I mentioned. There's some brand new saltwater destinations where we, we we both opened and are getting ready to to, to start representing that are really unique, extremely exciting, relatively easy. Um, so for those people who are looking at international travel, we've got some exciting destinations going out there, really good stuff. And, um, and then as far as local fishing, um, I love the local area. As I mentioned, there's besides the lower sack, there's so many great waters, everything from tiny little mountain creeks that are full of beautiful little rookies and rainbows that never get touched. Nobody does that kind of fishing. You put a two way, seven foot two weight out there. It's hmm. amazing. It's a blast. Yep. And there's, there's places like the Warners, you know, that have great trout fishing that nobody goes. Cause it's, it's a two hour drive from there. Ah, I don't have to go that far to catch good fish, but you know, the, and then there's rivers like this upper sack and McLeod and the, the pit and these great blue ribbon streams that this year, it should be a great year. Cause we had a big snowpack. And whereas the, the fishing may be a little tough in May, um, because there's going to be some high water um, come June and even July into the, our hot summers, I think it's going to be a banner year for local oh, fishing, cool. um, especially once you get to late May and June. Um, and it'll cover, carry through the season. So is that the there's just a lot of good stuff. If you had to pick one month to, to fish, is there a best time? For local? Yeah, for the sack. Um, I, would say, I would say locally, I would, on the lower sack, I would probably pick, well, it's hard because it's yeah. all good all the time, but I would probably pick, you know, maybe a spring date before the river comes up, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, March or something like that yeah. when we've got hatches and everything's going on, the water's low. And the, on the mountain streams, um, like the, the McLeods, the pits, the upper sacks, I normally look at, it depends on the snowpack, but if a little higher snowpack like over this year, June is usually the golden month because okay. that's when you're going to have, good water conditions so you can the fish are going to be eating no matter what but in by june this year um we're gonna have ideal water conditions and it's still that's still a, just a really great hatch hatching time it's when the mayflies stones caddis everything's hatching then so mm. you have not only great nymphing which you always have but you have some really good dry dry action too gotcha, so. gotcha. okay perfect and some some years that's may but okay. this year it's probably going to yeah, be June. and you guys so. don't have um as far as uh, like a stone fly, you don't really have the salmon fly hatch down there, a big one, or do you have that? Salmon? Oh, we do. Yeah, actually, we've got we've actually got a really great salmon fly hatch on um, on Hat Creek, oh, okay. a good one on the McLeod, oh, a pretty cool. good one on the Upper Sack. The Lower Sack, not see, it's here, you'll see it, but there's not still not enough of them to you know, provoke a, a you know, giant response. Yeah. Um, the fish see enough of them so that they eat the nymphs like ten men, but they don't eat the dries as much because it. You know, just, it's not thick, but some of our mountain trout streams have a really good population. Oh, good. Good. Okay. Well, uh, so if they want to find you or the shop, uh, just the flyshop.com is the best spot. Do you want any other uh, uh, links or you want to, where they can find you we want to uh, sh- uh, share here? Yeah, if they, want to, if they want to just drop me a quick note or have a question or something, again, they can get to me at, at mercer at theflyshop.com. But otherwise, if you know, they just go to the normal fly shop site or whatever you think anybody can just direct them to me or um but yeah just the flyshop.com is our website and all, all the stuff that we do okay that works great perfect all right mike well uh just want to thank you for coming on i appreciate uh, i mean the, the, definitely the show i kind of had an idea where we were going from the start and we, we kind of transferred and i'm glad we jumped into your local waters because uh it sounds like you have some pretty amazing fishing right right in the backyard so it's good yeah i just wanted, wanted really to thank do. you for all your your knowledge and we'll look forward to keeping in touch with you Thanks, Dave. Appreciate the opportunity. Okay, see ya.
take care. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash Mike. If this show was helpful at all, if it was entertaining or educational or otherwise you just hung on to the show, I'd love if you could share it with one other person. It is my goal to change the world. And even though I don't know exactly how I'm going to do that right now, I know that making connections with more people and getting the word out is going to be the secret sauce for this little movement. Let's change somebody's day, week, or month, or year by introducing them to Mike Mercer and The Missing Link. Thanks again for stopping by to check out the show today. I'm looking forward to catching up with you soon and hope to maybe see you online or on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.